Hello and welcome to the Behind the Wheel podcast, the culmination and brainchild of my own love for cars, but also my determination to make sure that nobody ever goes through what I've been through. That is hating their nine to five and living only for the weekends. Today we speak to Jess Harefield, someone who not only has, quite frankly, one of the most amazing looking cars you will have ever seen. If you do want to have a look at it, go on to Instagram, look him up. Um, it just looks incredible. It is the most phenomenal Lamborghini you'll have ever seen, both exterior and the interior. It's incredible. But also, he's someone who has got a real passion for helping young people get onto the entrepreneurial ladder, set up their own businesses, um, his tips, his advice, his support, and the work he's done the Princess Trust um, has been phenomenal and he continues to help young people today. I am so, so excited to welcome him to, to the podcast. Here are some really exciting clips that you can look forward to. When you have the money, you've got to be able to give back. You've got to be able to give back and help people and inspire them. You've got to inspire them to want to get off their ass and actually go and do something with their lives. Um, there's a lot of people are very set in their ways they're quite happy to bumble along doing what they're doing and actually with a little bit of inspiration you can actually inspire people to do it and they it's not about somebody having four a's or having a university degree it's all well and good but are you the kind of person who is self-driven self-motivated who wants to get out of bed in the morning who wants to push themselves for a career or are you the personal person that feels entitled because you've actually done a university degree, you've worked really hard for your university degree, and now you deserve it all on a plate? And funnily enough, the ones that haven't had that chance, uh, either through financial reasons or through just just a you know, life story in terms of where they've ended up, those that haven't had that chance are the ones that work harder, they work faster. They want it. They really want it. And I've had some fantastic success. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Not at all. Not at all. Jesse, ask all my podcast guests, first of all, what does your dream five-car garage look like? Well, do you know what? That, uh, of the questions that um, we said we were going to sort of talk about, it was actually the hardest question. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm sure it is for all the people on the podcast because... Yeah. You, you think about all the amazing cars that we've now got available, and I'm, I'm a bit of a carholic. Over the last 25 years, I've had over 100 cars, and in fact, when I was younger, I was flipping cars on a weekly basis. Oh, wow. a car. um, so for, for my journey, it's always been, you know, I'd spend a large proportion of my earnings when I was younger on cars because I've just been a, such a petrol head. Um, growing up, my dad had a, had a car garage, uh, also electrical business, and I chose to spend my Saturdays down there playing with cars, wiring up start motors, alternators, and getting to know cars. So oh, for me, cars, I've lived and breathed cars for 25 years. Wow. So in terms of trying to choose five cars, actually, the rest of it, all the business stuff, oh, my God, that's easy. But <laughs> I'm to five actual cars that I would, that I would love. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have had pretty much all my dream cars, apart from one, um, so all the things that I would actually love to have in that sort of five-car garage. Um, first one is, is an actually an, uh, it, one that got away from me, which is the E63 um, M6 V10. And I ran that car. It's probably the longest car I've ever had for about two years. 
and I put 50,000 miles in it and about a gazillion pounds in petrol, but I love every second of it. It, it makes a noise that gurgles that you can hear from about two miles away. Oh, my uh, God. I, it, that car came up for sale again last year, and I phoned up to buy it, and it had been sold. I was absolutely oh, gutted. Oh, my God. So, um, oh. I did try and buy my car back. Um, next car would be a Range Rover, a 2022 Range Rover, because I've had lots of Range Rovers. They're utterly useless. They break every five minutes. Um, I'm currently in an X5M as a result of that, but the 2022 Range Rover looks really good, so you've got to have a nice, big, comfy Range Rover to, yeah. to kind of run around in. Um, I'd have a Centenario Roadster, kind of that step up from the Aventador. Looks absolutely insane. It's got a proper sat-nav system in it. doesn't need a roof. Why have a roof? Um, I've not put my roof on, on my Aventador, apart from once when it, when it absolutely tipped it down, but nine times out of ten, the roof's off, so... Um, so you, could, you know, something like a Centenario Roadster, a Phantom Drophead Coupe. Wow! Uh, as you need a big barge to um, drive around <laughs> in the summer, uh, with a picnic table in the back of it, just so you can park on the side of the road, get your picnic table out, yeah. and um, wherever you are, just have a picnic. And the last one is a fifty-foot boat with a jet ski, because it's not all about cars. And actually, I enjoy boating as much as I enjoy cars. And I've done a lot of cars. Um, but there's something about floating around on the Solent and then jumping onto an 80-mile-an-hour, 0-60 in two-second jet ski yeah. and having a blast around with that that is the same sort of thing as supercars, but equally as good. That's amazing. That's amazing. What would you say? I mean, you, you mentioned the E60 there. Would that have been your, your, your most favourite car to have owned ever? It, it is, yeah. That's just crazy. You know, as a car, it's probably worth in today's money 15 grand, 15, 18 grand, something like that. And I've had everything from a Lotus Esprit to a Ferrari 458 to um, loads of mad cars. Yeah. And of all those cars, I just loved the noise that that E63 made. Yeah. It screamed, it revved round to not, not very high, it was about 7,000 RPM. But at 7,000 RPM on that, M, on that V10, oh, my God, it sounded gr- glorious. Oh, man. Are you, a, uh, are you more of a – obviously, you've, you've got a Lambo, but are you – having owned a Ferrari as well, what would you say is, is your kind of more preferred brand, mm. if you like? Um, I'd actually say Ferrari. Really? Okay. As a brand, just in terms of how it makes you feel when you drive it, uh, the Aventador makes you feel a little bit like you're driving an upscaled R8 or something German. It's very German or Germanic in its feel. Um, whereas you get in the Ferrari and it feels much more Italian. Um, yeah, yeah. It just feels much more handmade. And you know, the Aventador's got a 15-year-old A8 um, sat-nav system in it. So right, right. it just feels very Germanic. And it's, but don't get me wrong, fantastic car to drive, epic to be in. Um, if, if Ferrari made a Lamborghini-sized uh, Roadster V12 at yeah. the same money as a Lamborghini-sized Roadster, yeah. <laughs> the Ferrari. Oh, blimey. We are going to get into the, uh, into the mindset stuff, but before we do that, I just want people to understand um, this Lamborghini that you've got, because it is a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, the thing is, I've, I've always been different and different in business, different as me. I, I want to be me. And a lot of people buy cars that are black on black or silver on black or they worry about the next owner of a car. And I've always been talking about resale values and worrying about, you know, what it's going to cost in the future. I don't care about that. I buy it because I, you only live once. 
And the fact that you only live once, you've got to enjoy the things that you've got. So I like blue and orange. I grew up, uh, went out to the States when I was younger quite a few times, uh, fell in love with Miami Dolphins, and kind of ever since then, you know, my, my company colours, you see orange behind me, uh, are orange, and, and they were blue, but they were blue and orange at one point, um, but they're now just orange. Um, but anything sort of orange and blue, yeah, I go crazy for it. And so when I had an opportunity to actually spec a car to my specification, I flew out to the factory, um, met with the Amazonian team, and they were like, well, what do you want? And I gave them this sort of idea of what I wanted, and they sort of went, they cringed a little bit, and went, um, that sounds crazy, let's design it. And the, the funny thing was, after, after it was built, and after I, I started you know, doing some of the shows with it, I had quite a few people from the factory actually uh, messaged me on LinkedIn and on um, Instagram, and say, I worked on that car. It's one of my favorite cars of all time. Oh, wow. Wow. Quite, quite risky, though, because I guess if it wouldn't have worked out, uh, it might have been uh, a, bit, a bit tough. I, I've, done, I've done, I think, part of the reason um, I think it's different is I've done lots of projects over the years. I built a Bentley where I, I um, bought an old Bentley, spent about 40 grand on it, turned it into something that looked quite amazing. And again, it's one of those... If it had turned out rubbish, I'd have just had it retrimmed. Yeah. Um, if, if I didn't like the colour of the paint, I'd have just had it painted. Um, so, you know, I'm, not, I'm never wed to things. And I know some people are very much, you know, a car has to look like it came from the factory. But I like it, I'll just change it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, obviously, um, with the podcast, we've got a lot of young, a lot of young listeners who, who tune in. Um, and obviously, we've got, we've got quite, a, quite a young follow-up on social media. Um, I think for me, one thing that kind of struck me quite quite early on when I was researching you was the fact that you have um, put a lot of emphasis on trying to empower, inspire, motivate young people. Yes. Um, why is that so important to you, Jesse? Um, I was I was given a chance by t- t- twice, if you like, by people willing to help young people. And when I was growing up, I did a couple of things. One of them was the Duke of Edinburgh's Award. And I didn't finish it because I, I got my first job, but it actually took me from what was probably a very nervous, non-confident young person to somebody who could actually be a leader, uh, who could be in the middle of a field and tell somebody where to go. And that was kind of the first part of it. And I was very lucky. I was um, I was actually going into I did I did a year after my GCSEs, and it was the I can't remember exactly what you call it. It was a vocational education thing. And it meant that I could go to university and kind of skip college. And it was was supposed to be an 18-month course. And at the end of it, I would have got some some grades. I was walking into it one day, and there's a sign on the wall saying, do you want to earn 30 grand a year? And I was like, "Uh, yeah, of course I do. And this was in the 90s, so 30 grand a year was some serious money. Um, I picked up the phone, and I went down, and I managed to blank my uh, interview just by remembering a few things. And I got a job working at Rank Xerox doing canvassing. And I, I literally threw away what, what most people would look at and say a perfectly good, um, what was, would have led me to sort of college and university. Um, th- threw that away to actually go and work. But as a gamble, it was like, you know what, I want the money. I actually want a career. Uh, and here's an opportunity to do it. And by the time I was... 19, I was earning 30 grand a year. I had a company car. 
and all my friends were off um, dotting around and just having fun. So um, it's part of that journey. And what that kind of led me to was when I was 19, I started my first business. And I had no idea how to go into business. But that had been in business, but he'd moved away. So I didn't really have any help or a, or a mentor. And I saw this thing in the newspapers, Prince's Trust. And it was about helping the young. And I had to go and stand in front of 30 people as a young 19-year-old and pitch my idea. I was utterly terrified. And I asked them for £10,000 to start a, a business selling photocopiers, um, which, I, which I knew quite confidently. And they would, uh, they would give me a mentor. And the mentor was the bit that I actually really wanted. I wasn't that bothered about the money. It was actually the mentor yeah. to help me um, be in business. And that, that very early on was kind of like the – I had people all the way through my life. You know, Duke Edinburgh's Award, that, the company, Rang Xerox, who were very much around bringing the young on and, and investing in the young to actually get them into a job. And then the sort of Prince's Trust where they very much touched me to say, you know, uh, we, we're going to help the young all the way through those sort of three things, it was pushing me to say, Jess, you've got to, when you have the money, you've got to be able to give back. You've got to be able to give back and help people, inspire them. You've got to inspire them to want to get off their ass and actually go and do something with their lives. Um, there's a lot of people are very set in their ways. They're quite happy to bumble along doing what they're doing. And actually, with a little bit of inspiration, you can actually inspire people to do it. And the, that first business, I broke. I overtraded. I um, I did so well at it, and I was so young and confident, and I kind of ignored all the advice of the uh, mentor, and I overtraded, sold far too many photocopiers, got into a position where I couldn't manage the cash flow, and before you knew it, I'd broken it, and I learned an awful lot of lessons off the back of that. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, um, we will go into that in a bit more detail, but... Um, one of the things that I found really interesting was on your website, um, you mentioned that there was an apprenticeship program that's not based on academic grades. Yes. Um, why is that? Um, because, actually, I'm, I'm probably a good example of that. I didn't do so well at school. Uh, I got bored. couldn't be bothered. But actually, I had the tenacity and want to do things. And I've met a lot of people throughout the years where actually they're need, want, drive, intelligence. And intelligence is a key part of that. If, you're a, if you haven't got the intelligence to go with it, um, you, you probably do need to go and get the grades to actually learn how to learn. And that's what, when you're getting grades, that's what, you, that's what you're sort of teaching you, is to learn how to learn. It doesn't matter whether you're going to college or university, it's a greater experience of teaching you how to learn. And so that when you go into whatever your industry, your chosen industry is, or whatever company that you're going into, um, they know that you know how to learn. Those with a relatively high level of intelligence don't necessarily need to learn how to learn. So you can pick somebody up at a relatively young age, from 16 probably through to 21, where it's the, potentially their first job. Nobody's believed in them. Nobody's listened to them. Nobody's looked at them and gone, do you know what? You've actually got some, some raw skills there. If I can teach you some stuff, you can actually go the full way. So for me, um, it's, it's not about somebody having four A's or having a university degree. It's all well and good. But are you the kind of person who is self-driven, self-motivated, who wants to get out of bed in the morning, who wants to push themselves for a career? Or are you the person or person that feels entitled because you've actually done a university degree, you've worked really hard for your university degree, and now you deserve it all on a plate? Mm -hmm. And funnily enough, the ones that haven't had that chance 
uh, either through financial reasons or through just just their you know, life story in terms of where they've ended up. Those that haven't had that chance are the ones that work harder. They work faster. They want it. They really want it. And I've had some fantastic success. I've I took uh, one guy. I took him as a as a, a van driver from Booker's, and. When I first met him, we did we did a round of interviews that were very, you know, very similar to almost Britain's Got Talent. People come up and they, they present who they are and what they are. And all they had to do was present for three minutes on something they were passionate about. And he was passionate about IT. And for that three minutes, he talked. He looked at me. He uh, talked to me about IT with such a passion. When the three minutes finished, his eyes went to the floor um, I tried to shake his hand, and he was, his hand was sweating, and he couldn't, he couldn't, wow. literally couldn't do anything. And afterwards, I said to the guys, "He's going to be one of our two. He's going to be one of our two this intake because uh, he's passionate about IT." And five years later, he left me, went to Dell on a six-figure salary, and wow. since been to his wedding, uh, you know, he's he's really sort of moving on in life, and it's being able to invest in people wake up in the morning and see that journey as much as anything. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I make some good money from doing what I do, but being able to help people is actually more of a buzz than any of the money could ever give me. I think that's such an important point for young people to understand, isn't it? That, you know, people kind of in the early stages, they, in the, in the pursuit of money, they forget that money isn't actually the the, the thing that makes you happy. It's, it's, it's the freedom. It's the, what it also gives you is that has that been the case for you? Very much so. The um, I, I've always put one of my first bosses, first boss at that, that company that took me on. Um, when I when I took on that jo- job where it was you want to earn thirty quid a week, I started on fifty quid a week. That was my YTS scheme, and you know people talk about. I put an advert on the, the local uh, on the local Facebook groups uh, last year for two um, trainings at £14,000 a year. And, oh, my God, the amount of people were saying, you can't live on that, you can't do this, you can't do that. You know, it's 14000 like, I take people on a three-year journey where they're going to be on 30, 40 grand a year after three years. They've got to be willing to invest. If they're not willing to invest in themselves, then I'm not willing to invest in them. I started on 50 quid a week. And I had to kind of, although they paid my petrol to kind of get around, I had to eat on that. And, all right, 50 quid a week might be 150 quid a week in today's money, but it's still not a lot of money to, to live on. And that journey in terms of taking a person on, going on a, um, um, a role has driven me from, from day one. A plus B equals C was what my first boss said to me. And what he meant by that was it doesn't matter what A is. And in my, in my context at the time, it was canvassing. So go out and knock on enough doors. B, then phone enough people afterwards and C will come, which could be appointments in my case. But in, in many young people's case, A, so if, you, if you're in selling, A would be to do enough proposals. B would be to follow up enough proposals and work hard enough to do that. And C, the money will come. The problem is with a lot of people, they focus so much on C, they don't actually get the job done. They're all talking about, I want to earn this amount of money and that amount of money and this amount of money. And so for me, my entire career has been driven by A plus B equals C. If I work really hard and I sacrifice and the same comes in business, if I work really, really hard and I reinvest all the money that I have in business, then it will grow. And actually that, that's, 
that, that's actually quite a pertinent story in his own right. I started a business 14, 14 years ago, and at the same time, I put a friend of mine into business, and we, he was doing security products, and I was doing IT. And my first deal, I employed two people. My second deal, I employed another two people. At the time, I was driving around in a 100,000-mile uh, Volvo T5, which was uh, clattering on the suspension parts and, and kind of broken. Um, and I did that on purpose because I wanted to invest every penny that I had into the business. Now, what he did was uh, his first deal, he got an extension on his house. His second deal, he put, uh, moved his home office into uh, from his outside into his, into his garage. His third deal, he bought a really nice car, lovely, lovely car, six series BMW. And at about two years, I was still driving around in a battered T5, but I had 14 stuff. And I was turning over about £2 million a year. He had one member of staff and was turning over about £300,000 a year. So A plus B equals C. If you just worry about the money and you worry about the goods and you worry about what you're getting and how you're getting it, you'll never get it. And I see things as a byproduct. I always say this to young people. If you work hard and you work in a job you hate and you do that as as a part of a method to getting your career you see will come whatever it is that you ultimately want it will come if all you ever want talk about think about is is see and that's all you can ever see see will never happen for you uh, that's it's really really it's so true so true um to, to what to what degree has um enjoying what you do been been part of your kind of your 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 ethos and and importance in your success um that's actually quite a hard question to answer because there's been vast swathes of my career where it has been A plus B equals C, where I haven't enjoyed it. And I've known that in order for me to be successful, I have to do the things I don't enjoy. And even right at the beginning, going right back to the beginning when I was effectively doing door knocking to sell photocopiers, I hated it. You know, despite the fact that I looked pretty confident, when I was a young person and I'd, I'd gone through uh, Duke of Edinburgh's award, I was more confident than I started, but I was still very shy. And I hated picking up a telephone. I hated talking to people. I hated cold calling and getting told to go away. Um, I hated going out and door knocking and getting told to go away. But what I actually developed was methods where um, I actually came to enjoy it and I learned how to enjoy the things that I hate. I would, uh, when I went door knocking, I would go and buy a great big box of cakes from Tesco's and I would start walking around and I would chat and chat to all the receptionists. Um, um, I, you know, I actually started enjoying and having fun doing that. And the same thing with, um, with the cold calling. You know, you'd find me actually standing on a desk, almost like a city trader, shouting down the phone at people, telling them jokes and just being silly and having a laugh. And actually that made me successful because I'd learned to enjoy the things that I hated doing. But actually, from from very young age, I've always been passionate about IT. I kind of almost knew I would get into IT. I just needed to find a route to it. But what I found when I actually got to the point where I thought I would be doing IT, I didn't actually enjoy IT. I didn't enjoy the doing, the spanners, the putting it together. And although I am very technical, I didn't actually enjoy that piece. What I enjoyed was sales. I enjoyed talking about IT more than I enjoyed doing IT. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for me, it was finding something that I enjoyed. I found sales pretty early on, and I've stuck with generally sales throughout my career. Um, 
and that, and that's kind of where I've, I've ended up. But certainly, the do, do I enjoy what I do? Um, some days I wake up and I know I've got to do a whole load of crap that I don't really want to do, but I kind of get on and do it. And then other days, I know I kind of get up and um, I'll enjoy that day. But for me, it's the sea piece. I can then at the weekend jump in a in a nice car and go off and do a crazy event or jump on a boat and go and do something bonkers as a result of doing all the things that I hate doing. And how? I mean, what would be your advice for young people who are perhaps not sure, you know, what what they find enjoyable or what they've got an interest in? What would be your advice for them who are kind of, you know, a bit a bit confused, I guess, and not and not sure where they want to go with their life? Try a few things. Uh, you know, I when I when I was young, I tried a few things, and the you've got to try and figure out what it is that you actually enjoy in life and. You won't get that by just staying in the same job for the next 40 years. I know, you know, when my parents were growing up, it was my granddad had actually got, he got a, 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 an award watch for being at the same company for 50 years. And, uh, you know, the, the world isn't like that anymore. You've, you've got to um, figure out what it is you enjoy. And it might be that you figure out what it is you enjoy, but you can't do it straight away. And you've got to work out a route to get to those things that you enjoy. Now, I didn't consciously do that. I kind of ended up just by keep pushing myself and trying different things, fell into the thing that I actually enjoy, which is IT sales. But um, I would have found it eventually. But, uh, but there's no defined route to actually get to it. Just keep trying. Never give up. Mm. I mean, um, having, having worked with, you know, um, quite, quite, quite a few young people, what, what are some things that you find are often obstacles or challenges that they face? Um, what are sort of, the, sort of themes that you find? Self-motivation. Um, there, there's a pattern. If I go back 10 years ago and I would take on three young people, I would have one young person who would fail pretty quickly. And it would be that it just it wasn't them. They were trying different things and it just, it just wasn't them. And then I'd have another one that would probably last about six months. And then they, then somebody would dangle a carrot in front of them. that was bigger than my carrot at that time, but they couldn't see beyond that carrot. So they would be on, say, 14, 15 grand a year. They're in the first year. And one of the local disties comes along and offers them 20 grand a year. Now, with that local disty, they're going to be on 20 grand a year, probably for the next five years, whilst they go through their training plan. My, my training plan was to get them onto 40 within three. So I, I tend to lose one to a local district. And it's that lack of vision. They're so focused on the money. They're out the door and they, they come to regret it. Every one of them, I, I know them. I stay in contact with people. Every one of them has always said afterwards, I regretted doing that because it was a, it was a step for money and not for my mm -hmm. career. Mm -hmm. And then the, the sort of third type that I used to get was very much a um, hungry person that wasn't very skilled. Roll on 10 years, about 90% of the young people that I see, they don't know what they want. They don't have a clue what they want from life. But the challenges that I see around that is then self-motivation. If you don't know what you want from life, how do you push yourself? Mm. How do you know where to drive yourself? How do you know what to do? And as a result of that, a lot, a lot of the young people um, come in and they, you know, they work hard. They work nine to five, um, and then they go home and they play on the computer or they go out drinking or whatever. They're not, they're not pushing themselves. And the ones that are successful are the ones that go home at five, but then take a book with them and they read it. 
and then they learn some extra stuff so that when they come in, they actually apply that to their job the next day and they do better at it. And it's that, that sort of how do I push myself to be the next person, um, to be me, the best me that I can be? And out of the, if I employed three people now, two people would be the, I'm not going to push myself. And the third person might still be that old style kind of, I kind of know what I want to do, but I'm not sure how to get there. Um, and they'll go one of two ways. They will either fall into, they'll see others not pushing themselves and they'll go, oh, I don't have to push myself, so why do I have to bother? Um, or they'll go, well, screw them. I actually want to have a career. I'm going for the C. This is what I'm going to do. So now in today's world, my biggest challenge with trying to get young people is to inspire themselves. Not me inspire them, to actually inspire themselves and push themselves to better themselves. That's amazing. And, um, I mean, you, you, you also uh, very briefly mentioned um, – a, a, a potential issue around entitlement. Um, yes. Do you mind just elaborating a little, a, a little bit on that and, and, and what you find? It's, um, it's really frustrating because it, it's something that I, I see a lot. It's something we actually even talk about a lot. And this isn't even down to young people. This is a change in culture over, really over the last 10 to 15 years. And it's not really talking even about a young person on 15 to 20 grand a year. It could be a, um, a mid-level IT engineer on 35 to 50,000 pound a year, or it could even be a high-level IT engineer on 55 to 80,000 pound a year. It's not, it's not limited to a young person's problem. And actually, talking to um, my, my technical director the other day, we were talking about one of his previous roles where he would have people come into him and say, okay, I've, um, I've done my job for the last year. Um, I'm entitled to a pay rise now. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, but you've done a terrible job for the last year. You haven't pushed yourself. You haven't finished these projects. You um, were off sick this number of days. Why are you entitled to a pay rise? And he's like, well, I'm entitled to a pay rise because I've, I've been here for a year. And it's that kind of entitlement. And it's, I see it the same with... There's two types of people that come out almost with a university degree. Those that want it because they they learn to learn. They know the value of the university degree about learning to learn and what it means to an employer. When I sit down with someone who's got a university degree, I know they know how to learn. Therefore, I know that I can teach them. But a lot of people that I see, it's probably about 50% that come to me with a university degree. They are the type where they're sitting there saying, well, I deserve £35,000 a year because I have a university degree. I've got all this student debt that I need to pay off, and I've got all this that I need yeah. to do. So you have to pay me £35,000 a year, and I'm going to need a pay rise in six months as well um, <laughs> because it's not going to cover it. And it's like, well, actually, I could go and employ someone on £15,000 a year, and I can train them over the next three years, and they'll earn more than you. Um, but they will, on their £15,000 a year, be better for me than you will be because you're entitled. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the university people that come back with their degrees where they want to learn and they, they, they're sitting there going, do you know what? I am no better than the person next to me. I have just learned how to learn. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that are really good. They've got a real grasp mm-hmm. of what it means to have a university degree. Um, but in a year's time, if someone came to me and they said, Jess, I've spent the last six months working at um, 
I don't know, one of the Windows salespeople doing cold calling. And I want to go into sales in IT. And I've been paid, you know, 15 grand a year. And I've got a little bit of experience. That person with six months experience is actually worth more to me than a person who wants £30,000 a year um, with a university degree who's a little bit entitled. So entitlement isn't just, as I say, limited to young people. It's across the range. And it's, it's, it's something that, unfortunately, culture has bred. Um, this, this kind of, I've worked, so I, I'm entitled to it. Not I've worked hard. Not I've delivered all these extra things. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't get me wrong, if I, if I was somebody who'd worked really hard and I sat down with my boss and I said, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, I deserve a pay rise. And the, and the boss doesn't give him one, I'd be pretty pissed off. I'd be really annoyed about that. Um, and that's, that's not entitled. That's actually, they are entitled to that but the ones where they're just sitting there going you need to give me this now you need to give me more money and and it's nothing it's never enough certainly I've, I've seen it off with with some of the trainees that i've taken on you will give them eighteen thousand pounds a year and they will spend to their eighteen thousand pounds a year you'll then give them a pay rise to twenty four thousand pound a year and the next month you're saying to them they're saying can i borrow some money i've run out of it you know i've just given you a pay rise mm-hmm. and then they go up to thirty thousand pound a year and the, the problem is a lot of people spend to the amount of money they have. They don't have to save anymore. Yeah. So as a result of that, they feel that they're entitled to a pay rise because they've spent all their money and they haven't saved and they can't manage money themselves. Therefore, they have to, every five minutes, be asking for a pay rise because they can't afford to live. And they're suddenly trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know, yeah. They want to they you know, rather invest in themselves or rather than invest yeah. in other stuff. And I think, I mean, I, I remember hearing this thing once, you know, there's, there's two types of people who want a pay rise. One will go about it by going to their boss saying, I'm entitled to a pay rise, please give me a pay rise. And there's, there's yeah. the other one who will walk up to the boss and say, look, these are the current targets. If I achieve you know, 30% more than what our target is, and yeah. I do this, 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 and if we hit these quality metrics in here, 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 and I'm going to do this and this and this, then at that point, can we have a conversation about about pay would that be okay yeah. with you that is a much better way of doing it than actually walk up and boss and say you know what give me a pay rise please because i'm entitled to it i had one of my sales guys do that to me about three four months ago and he gave me some numbers that i thought were totally unachievable and with some really big bonuses in if you achieve them and i said do you know what i wouldn't normally say yes i think they're unachievable but if you do that you would have made me so much money that I don't care. And, <laughs> um, in fact, it might be longer. So it would have been January. And last month, I paid him a very significant bonus uh, for achieving it. And he, you know, he's driven by driven by achievement, driven by money. Knew that he could achieve it if he pushed himself. He was one of these people that you know, wasn't a nine to fiver. Was leaving at sort of seven every night. And you know, as a result of that, he's earned an awful lot of money. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, I want to just touch on, um, obviously, the, the, the bit about entitlement, just again, for, very quickly. Yeah. Is, there a, is there a link in your, in your view between entitlement and, and, and those who feel entitled and also um, not feeling accountable or responsible for everything? In oh, the- 100%. Um, it wasn't my fault. Uh, I didn't do it. Uh, it's all your fault that I have failed. And there's something I hear a lot. Your training wasn't good enough. Your this wasn't good enough. Uh, I didn't do this because. 
you let me down. This let me down. The company let me down. Nothing is my fault at all. 100%. That, that link between nothing is my fault and feeling entitled, I see it as a pattern. The problem is I can't see it when you interview somebody. So I'll interview um, to, you know, probably 50 people to get three. And as I come out the back of that, I've picked three that you think are doing uh, are the ones that would do really well. And I pick a breadth of people. I don't just pick the ones where they're, they're looking really good. I try and pick the ones where they're like the guy who was stood in the corner and couldn't shake your hand. But the, the sociopath can hide it really well. And the way that these people can hide it is they talk around all the positives they don't actually talk around their negatives, and I always ask people what their negatives are, what they, what they, you know, what they feel their worst quality is, what they're, what they're bad at. And I can try and wheedle out of people, but it's, it's impossible. So you end up with at least one out of probably three where they're sitting there as these entitled people. But they, every time, it's not my fault. And the worst ones are the ones where they hide it. They break something or do something, and they just don't tell you about it. Mm -hmm. and then you about three days later figure it out and then you catch them out and then they're then they're almost trying to blame anyone else or anything else apart from themselves mm -hmm. and one of the things that that one of my early bosses said to me was jess even if it's not your fault just say sorry because actually that that even when somebody's angry and somebody's shouting at you down the phone or in your face when you say sorry to them it is actually the most um It'll change somebody's personality from being crazy to they don't know how to deal with it. And so quite often, even for stuff that isn't my fault, I am so sorry. And actually just saying that to somebody makes a difference. So I like staff that are honest, upfront. Um, I say to people when they come to work for me, uh, a spade to spade. I always call a spade a spade. And don't call it anything else. Don't be anything else but yourself. Don't try and bullshit me. Don't try and lie to me. Just be you. If you've got something wrong, just tell me. I'm not going to fire you for it. I'll try and help you to show you don't actually get it wrong next time. Um, and it's if something is your fault, own up to it. Just be honest about it. And I might shout at you. There, is, there might be an occasion where you tell me something and I might shout at you, but then I'll help you not do it again. And you'll not do it again and you'll learn from it. And you'll, you know, I can't promise that I'm not going to get annoyed by you being honest with me, but I can promise I'm not going to fire you. So that's kind of about as far as I can get on that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, as, as someone who's kind of, you know, um, had your, your fair experiences of entrepreneurship, business, um, yeah. starting up, for those who are thinking about starting your own business um, and, you know, having, having been through it yourself, what would be your sort of, I suppose, three to five top tips uh, for those who are looking to start out? Have you got like three hours to just... <laughs> Do you know what? I'll, um, I'll whiz through a few because that talk is the talk that I do for Duke of Edinburgh's award. I do them uh, five or six a year where in front of a room full of 20 people, I'll just talk to them about Duke of Edinburgh's award. Sorry, not for Prince's Trust. I'll talk about Prince's Trust, about starting a business, why you should start a business, top tips for starting a business. Um, and also give them a bit of inspiration off the back of it to try and inspire them to want to start a business and i've been lucky enough i've been lucky enough to support prince's trust and meet prince charles and talk to him about sort of the young people and what what, what he's doing it for i'm one of a very small number of people where he was able to invest in me and now i'm able to invest back in those people 
Um, so it's just that kind of circle of life to actually help people uh, on that journey. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet um, the Duke of Edinburgh and thank him for uh, helping me on my journey as well. And those things aren't why I did it. I didn't get out of bed and wake up when I was sort of 17 and go, Do you know what, I'm going to work my ass off so that I can go and meet some, some uh, wealthy royal people. Actually, for me, it was about trying to influence as much as anything them to help more people in different ways. And the reason that I actually wanted to meet uh, both of those was actually to tell them my experience and to tell them how they could help more young people. So going into business, I do this talk frequently. Um, it's really hard. So this is actually as hard as the car question um, <laughs> because I've, I've probably got a hundred different things that I could talk about as um, advice for people starting in business. But, but if I pick a couple that really sort of stand out, um, the reason that you go into business is because you want freedom. As much as anything, people want freedom, and they will give you that freedom. The reason I'm in business is because I'm unemployable. I'm a bit grumpy. I grew up with my dad in the motor trade. I was diagnosed five years ago with bipolar. And off the back of that, one of the things that sort of talking to people about it is the reason I'm unemployable is because what's in my head generally comes out my mouth and that will be fact. It's to me, it's fact. Mm -hmm. And so that freedom that you have within being self-employed is you're able to be you. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to listen to somebody else. You make your decisions right or wrong. You live and die by those decisions. You live and die on the sword. If you get it wrong, you could lose everything. Literally, you can lose everything. I've, I've lost everything twice now. And going to business is a gamble because if you are prepared to put everything on the line, you will be successful, but there's also a chance that it could go wrong. And if you don't put everything on the line, you won't ever really grow beyond what, you know, if, if you were to be a mechanic and you were just, you were just yourself and you were going to go and do some cars and you were to employ, you know, make X hundred thousand pounds a week. But if you were to put everything on the line, you take every penny you have and you employ a second person, then you employ a third person, then you take on a garage and then you don't buy a house and you, or you uh, use your house as equity in order to fund the growth of the business. And that, that person, that's the person who you're going to see um, who is going to have the nice cars and have the nice house. The, there's a term that I coined years ago, director's syndrome. I see it so often. Like the guy I put into business in 2006, um, you get the big title, you sit there, you think, I'm actually kind of comfortable doing this. I don't really want to take the risk. I don't really want to take risk my house. I just want to kind of bumble along. I might earn some good money. I might earn 50 grand a year, 100 grand a year, but I'll never really earn the big bucks. I'll never be able to get the cars and the boats and the big houses because I've not risked anything to get those things. You've kind of got to risk everything. So the freedom comes with risk. But you have absolutely, you, you ultimately, you have control over your destiny, control over um, how you do it, what you do it, and control over who you are and what you, what, you, what you are. And that, for me, is actually more important than being earning a regular wage. It's a massive gamble. It's a huge gamble. But um, that step from earning a regular wage, the, and that's, it's very much you know, stepping out of your comfort zone, risk-reward. If you step out of your comfort zone, you are taking a risk, but the reward will come with that will be absolutely huge. Um, 
So some, some random things in there, going into business. Uh, if you're considering starting a business, you need to write a plan. So many people jump into a business and they don't write a plan. But actually that plan isn't how you're going to do business. That plan is just to give you a guide. And that plan needs to change. And the businesses I've seen have failed where they're trying to stick to their plan rigidly. Mm-hmm. I, my, my, I write a plan once a year. I change it six times a year. Um, I'm probably every two months and rewriting that plan. And it's got to have a plan, but you don't have to stick to it. And you've got to keep that plan updated. You've got to, as I learned from my first business, you've got to uh, manage cash flow. You've got to be a know-it-all. You've got to know everything. I, I learned the hard way that actually in business, you can't just be a salesperson. You can't just be an auto-electrical engineer or a hairdresser. or a, You can't just be that. You've got to understand finance. You've got to understand how much money you're making as a business. Because if you're going out there every day, working your balls off and actually earning nothing, then you need to do something different. Mm-hmm. Maybe not do it, maybe not go back to a job, but you need to change what you're doing to make sure that you are. And if you can't understand incomings and outgoings and profit and loss and balance sheets and know that you're actually making money, you probably shouldn't be in business. So you've got to be more than that person that when you went from that job and you were doing a job working for someone as something, there's a whole bunch of skills that you've got to adopt. And I've, I've actually still got a book. It was given to me 20, I think 24 years ago by uh, Lloyds Bank, and it's called Being in Business. And it was the book that I took on my Prince's Trust course. It was the book that I lived and died by in my first business. And it's still in my cupboard today, scrappy with notes all over it. And every now and then I still refer back to it. It talks about you know, business plans and structures and cash flow forecasts. And even, even me, I forget some random stuff every now and then. So that structure's really, 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 really important. And the last thing that I would say in business, it's never too late. Now, the... When you're in business, you have to differentiate between personal and business. And there's a phrase, you know, it's just business or business is business. Um, A lot of people can't because they're nice people. A lot of people go into business being nice people and they employ people that they like. And when those people are working for them, suddenly a downturn comes and they find it really hard to then fire what they cast as their friends and they leave it too late and then their business is screwed. Uh, ultimately the kind thing to do is actually to fire a few people and be open and honest about it and talk to people and say there's a downturn there's a problem i'm happy to do this for the business i'm really sorry but it's the right thing to do so we actually stay in business and i i and, and, and there's another example of that where it's never too late is that i ended up in mediation about seven eight years ago which is kind of just before you go to court, you kind of end up in mediation, sat with a bunch of lawyers. And it was a customer that I had actually introduced to the business and I kind of chucked it over my shoulder, given it to the team to kind of deal with. And they'd screwed it up and the customer had screwed it up. And sort of between them, they had a difficult person and we had some people who just wouldn't wouldn't work with a difficult person. And we ended up in mediation. And he's sitting there and I'm sitting there and the lawyers are starting to shout at each other and the mediator's getting a bit annoyed and I'm looking through all the paperwork and a couple of bits have changed in IT and I said to him, I think I could do this now. I think with the changes that we've made in IT and there's something that's happened uh, generally in IT over the last sort of three or four months that means that what you're asking is deliver, I think I could deliver it now. Mm. And he was like, all right, Jess, um, do you want to go to the pub next door and have a beer? 
And in the middle of mediation, we both got up and the lawyers were looking as if both of us had our FDs there, two lawyers and a mediator. And we both got up, went to the pub next door and drank a pint of Guinness. And we talked about it and we came back and we spent an hour writing some new contracts and re-signed him. And until I sold that business in 2018, he was still a customer and still happy. And um, so it's, even when people say it's too late, it's never too late to one, say sorry, but to change something. Um, and then the, the last part of that actually is don't put your head in the sand if you're in business. If you are going into business, a lot of people, I see this so frequently, the best piece of advice I could ever give somebody in business is don't put your head in the sand. When things start going wrong or something goes wrong and the letters start coming in, open the letters, phone them up and say, I'm so sorry. How can you help me? And... In business, it doesn't always go right. It's not all rainbows and Lamborghinis. It's a lot of hard work, and a lot of time it's close to running out of money. It's close to your biggest customer not paying you. It's close to things going wrong, staff members going wrong. Things happen, getting sued for something. As long as you jump on it and deal with it, you'll stay in business forever. But if you you put your head in the sand and don't deal with it, that, that is the thing that's going to come and bite you in the ass, and that's what will take you out of being, being in business. I want to I want to ask one final question in terms of entrepreneurship, if that's okay. Yeah. Is um, and it's something that I often get asked a lot about is the transition from having a day job to then owning a business, right? Yeah. And you know, people think that they have to kind of leave their day job tomorrow to make the business work, and there's this kind of like you know. Um, binary kind of thing where it's like, you know, if I want to succeed in a business, I have to drop everything and, and, and do it. Yeah. Oh, what would be true. your, which, 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 which is, which is not the case, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not the case. I, when I started one of my companies, uh, in 2000, there was three of us started together. Uh, at the time, one of us was working as a contractor. One, one of us was working as an IT person and I was working in sales and I had a really, really good job. Um, but I decided, you know, part-time, we would start to try and get this company off the ground, try and figure it out, just get all the dots together and, and actually do it. And because there's no point in quitting your job when you've not even got the dots together. It can take months to yeah, sort the limited company, sort out an office, sort out things, sort out an accountant, learn how to be in business, find a sage system, put all of your um, financial stuff together so you can create an invoice, get VAT registered and all of that crap can take three to six months before you're even in that position. And then one day I went into my job at that time and they changed the management structure. And they, they, a guy came along, um, despite the fact that I'd been working, reporting into the CEO of the business, it was a 300-person business, and they changed the management structure. And that week I wasn't reporting into the CEO anymore, trying to micromanage me, and I told him to shove his job up his ass. And I said, right, I'm done. And he was like, well, no, you can't be done. And they w- walked me into the CEO's office. The CEO offered me a big check. And I was like, no, I'm going to start my own business. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to roll. It's, it's not about money. You could offer me any amount of money that you want in the world. I want the freedom that comes with being in business. And I found up the other two guys who we've been, we've been putting it together and said, look, I've just quit my job. Um, you might want to quit yours. Probably give them about a month's notice because I'm going to get on with doing our business. Um, and let's get on and make it happen. So it's not, it's not a, you know, black and white, definitive, um, you, you have to do X, Y, Z. It is a scary thing. It's a scary moment 
cutting that umbilical cord and going from having a set amount of money or a variable amount of money, but an amount of money coming in every month to actually in a month's time, I might not have anything. And that's actually one of the things that I tell people going into business is count the number of days till you run out of money. And put it on a board, put it somewhere that it's so obvious to you, you know where it is. Because actually, that would be one of the biggest drivers for you increasing the amount of money that you have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you start your business, you're going to start it with an amount of money. And that might be £500 or it might be £50,000. But that amount of money will last you a number of days. And as you start to get down to a lower number of days, you're probably going to work just a little bit harder um, to make sure that you extend those days out. And at some point on your journey... You'll go from days to months, months to years, and then suddenly you'll hit a number where you stop counting. You stop worrying about how many days till you run out of money and stuff. You'll still worry about cash flow. You'll ultimately worry about cash flow. Have I got enough to um, pay all the invoices in and out? But that's different until days till I run out of cash. Um, That's a very finite number, and it doesn't matter how much cash flow you've got um, and how much business you're doing. If If it's not generating enough money for you to stay in business, you need to change that. Change it pretty quick. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I guess finally, um, Jeff. Um, in terms of your legacy, uh, what would you, what would you kind of want that to be? Um, the people, the people that I've been able to help. Those, um, for me, a brand is a brand. A company is a company. The the that really matters. Even items, houses cars, things, none of that really matters. It's all nice to have in life. The people that I've been able to help and the people that I've been able to make a difference to, and that's everyone from not, not just talking young people, that's talking about taking on um, a marketing manager 15 years ago and now she's got her own business, taking on an IT person uh, 12 years ago and now he's running his own business and successful and helps me on various projects, um, taking on an, an IT manager and turning him to an IT director, turning him, you know, that for me, that's my legacy. And when I'm old and sat there uh, in, in a wheelchair, covered in a blanket, sat on Bournemouth Beach, just looking out at the beach, I none of that house, car, thing, stuff will matter. What will actually matter is the people that I've been able to touch on that journey. It's so beautiful, and I'm, I'm sure that you've you've inspired many many people who will be listening to this at some point soon as well. That that will add to your uh, add to your legacy indeed. Jess, thank you so much for your time uh, this 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 morning. Um, it's much much appreciated. We look forward to uh, to hearing from hearing from you later on. More than welcome. I really enjoyed it. Cheers. Take care.